Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 104. This is your host, Peter Renton, co-founder of Lendit and founder of Lend Academy. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Brian Bursick. He is the CEO and co-founder at Wonder Capital. Now, Wonder Capital is a little bit different. They're focused in the solar space. They provide financing for solar energy projects. Now, I wanted to get Brian on the show because the company's now, it's been around for a few years. They're starting to get some traction and you know, they really have what is a unique offering. They've discovered a niche within the solar financing space that was underserved and they are going after it fairly aggressively. And on the flip side of that, they have great opportunities for investors to invest in a different kind of asset-backed project. And obviously, for those investors who are impact-focused, then this provides a great avenue for that as well. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Okay, so why don't we get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, talk about how your career has gone and what you've done before Wonder Capital. Sure. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, a public school kid, and uh, went to a small liberal arts school in, in Massachusetts called Williams College, and then uh, went to New York City for eight years. Started uh, at Bain and Company, which is a large management consulting firm, and then uh, moved over at Bain to private equity for my last year there, um, and then joined a venture capital firm doing really early stage uh, technology-focused investments. So this was a five to 10-person companies raising a couple million dollars into technology startups. And being in New York City, uh, one of the big industries is the financial technology industry. And we've seen so much innovation in that space, of course, in the last decade or so. And we were lucky enough to back a company called OnDeck Capital and, frankly, a bunch of companies in the space of commercial lenders. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to spend a lot of time with people figuring out how technology was uh, making commercial lending better, opening up new markets, finding new assets or data streams to value, kind of all of the things that alternative lenders have really done over the last decade. And, you know, what what I bring to wonder, there are a bunch of other people on the team, particularly my founders that, that bring other perspectives, but my background that I bring to wonder is really that of the lessons of the last decade of commercial lenders and how they added, how they brought technology to commercial lending. And we're, of course, doing that for the solar market. So applying those lessons in the solar space to get the same kind of benefits that have built these billion-dollar and publicly traded companies like Undead Capital that we backed when they were uh, eight people. Interesting, interesting. And then so you obviously, you found your way out to, to Boulder, Colorado, it seems like. So what, what brought you out to Boulder from New York? So Boulder is a really interesting combination of solar expertise and experience and network combined with a really robust early stage startup tech community. Um, you know, and there's been some written about this, the way that tech ecosystems are really important, where it's not only the engineers willing to work for a startup who understand startup pay and equity, and uh, but it's lawyers who are used to doing these sorts of deals and mentors and people who have exited before and can make your angel investment. And Boulder has that in a pretty remarkable way for the size of that town and really greater Denver. And in Boulder, you know, going back to the solar, we have the National Renewable Energy Labs 10 miles away, DOE's biggest, you know, renewable energy lab. Uh, you've got Rocky Mountain Institute, the nation's arguably best and 
most recognized uh, NGO in the in the renewable energy space uh, right down the street. And uh, Colorado has a lot of old energy money, and there's some old energy money that doesn't like renewables, but there's a bunch, an increasing amount that wants to hedge against you know, renewables doing really well, right, with their, with their fortunes they made in energy. And so you actually find a, a very friendly investor base. And so that kind of unique alchemy of solar and startup tech ecosystem and money that was used to long-term energy-based bets felt to us like a really good place to start Wonder Capital. All right. Well, it's uh, I'm pleased about that. I'm I'm sitting here in my in my studio in downtown Denver, and uh, it's great to talk to somebody who's just 25 miles away, as, as opposed to thousands or hundreds, anyway. Right down the street. Okay. Yep. <laughs> anyway, so let's let's get back to the founding of the company. What what did you see that was a catalyst to to start Wonder Capital? Nice to give credit where it's due. Uh, it was really uh, amongst our founders, uh, Dave Reese, our CTO, uh, and my co-founder, who was at the Department of Energy's top national lab, Lawrence Berkeley, out in Berkeley, California, um, as a senior researcher leading the team writing software to help California's grid deal with the now millions of you know roofs that are not just as they've been for the whole history of utilities lifetime and all of electricity infrastructure, just consumers, right? Just one top-down unidirectional flow of electricity from big systems to consumers. Now it is, you know, millions of roofs, whether commercial or, or homes or small utility that are feeding back into the grid as well. And that just creates a totally new dynamic. And so in the process of modeling out for California, how they're going to deal with this, you're of course looking at the growth rate of solar and you know, perhaps things like wind, but particularly solar because of this dynamic where so many you know, small roofs be, turn into little power generation units. It's just a fundamentally different thing. And so they're modeling that out and looking at historical growth rates, of course, to you know, try to project forward. And the residential space in the last five years, residential solar you know, rooftops installed per year has more than tripled in the last five years. Utility scale systems have more than quadrupled in the last five years. And a lot of the story of this growth is that the price of solar has dropped in half. It's been cut in half in those five years. So that's driving a lot of that growth. Now, commercial solar, same price decrease, same federal tax subsidies, same installation efficiencies, has grown about 50% in the last five years, right? So tripling, quadrupling, and then 50%. And that's a real anomaly, of course. You're wondering what's what's going on there, what's the problem. And as an entrepreneur, of course, you're always looking for a problem, you know, so you can come in and, and try to provide a solution. And what we saw was that this issue that had plagued, you know, the eighty percent of businesses in the country that don't have a commercial, you know, great credit score. You know, the vast majority of, of businesses that aren't Walmart and aren't CBS um, who have no problem financing these systems, the vast majority of these commercial entities, just like they experienced broadly before these commercial lenders came in who could underwrite them very efficiently and therefore service them with small loan amounts, um, which is a lot of the revolution of online lending and commercial is about getting really efficient and being able to service people even when you had to underwrite them and they had relatively small loan sizes. It's just kind of a pure efficiency, you know, fixed cost sort of play. So no one had done that in solar, first of all. And then we also saw that solar was this really fantastic asset to own in the case of default. And so when you look at the online lenders that have done really well, you want to bring this technology efficiency story of reducing the cost of underwriting and onboarding and servicing the loan all through software and automation. But you also, it really helps to have some new asset that you feel like, or you can tell a story that the capital markets are underpricing. 
uh, which I believe very firmly uh, myself, that solar assets are underpriced in the market. They're kind of misunderstood. They're relatively new. And so we thought the combination of coming into commercial, this underserved market, this market that should have grown by multitudes, suggests to us some underserved demand with both a really efficient software-enabled lending process, which really, as I say, is an innovation that's been proven out over the last decade. So we're kind of taking a lot of those lessons to solar, but also we think in a fairly innovative way, focusing a lot on solar as an asset and really, frankly, trying to create solar as a new asset-backed security kind of you know, product where people think of it as, you know, in the way people think maybe of equipment lending or, you know, auto lending where home lending where, you know, even in the case of default, there's a meaningful recovery story and asset there. Mm-hmm. So that, 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 that was what we saw an opportunity to do. And that's what we've been doing since 2013. Okay. So can you maybe just give us a couple of examples? You talk about this commercial solar and, you know, we, yeah. we, we realize it's not what you said. It's not Walmart. It's not utilities. So, who is it? In what are the what's the scale of these of these projects? Can you just just yeah, give us some examples? Absolutely. For sure. So first of all, when we came into the market, what we saw was that there was a very robust commercial project finance industry, above about three or four million dollars. If you had really big systems, there were plenty of kind of traditional project finance sort of folks that saw what's happening in solar and were willing to service you. But below about one point five million dollar project size, and particularly below a million. Those people doing it relatively manually just simply didn't make enough money on the deals to justify their expenses uh, because, again, they weren't using software. They weren't really automating fairly manual approach like, like I did in VC. I'm not, I'm not attacking it. It just doesn't work at those small sizes uh, from an economic standpoint. And so we, our sweet spot, we think, is kind of a quarter million dollars to a million dollars. Uh, our average deal is about half a million dollars right now through the year. And to give some sense of scale to, to, to listeners, uh, an, an average size kind of, you know, good three, four bedroom suburban house kind of, you know, in, in America might have a $25,000 system. That'd be a pretty substantial system for a home. So at $250,000, even ignoring economies of scale, you're at 10x that system size. So just the minimum is not going to be a restaurant or a barbershop, right? Even the relatively small ones are kind of multi-store retail with a big box retailer that's acting as kind of credit anchor, you know, couple story uh, commercial real estate, storage spaces, warehouses, generally kind of multi-use properties. That's helpful. You don't want high specialization because it's hard to fill those buildings and God forbid the case of default. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's not, you know, individual things that, you know, might look something like a, like a home consumption. It's kind of 10 X would be the minimum. And then of course, at a million dollars, you're at 20 X, a, you know, 25 K system. So, or excuse me, 40 X, 40 X, a, uh, a residential system. So starting to get pretty big, you know, the million dollar systems are, you know, four or five, six story, fairly energy intensive, you know, commercial real estate. Like I said, a lot of office buildings, a lot of headquarters, but generic office space, warehousing, storage, uh, that's kind of our sweet spot. Yeah. Okay. So then I, I actually bought solar panels for my house back in 2006. And, you know, I actually, since I don't live in that house anymore, so the new, the new owners are enjoying the, the solar panels. But I'm curious because back then, you know, it was really only in sort of the fall and spring that it really, I was able to get, you know, break even on, uh, like, basically have a, have a electricity bill of zero. Couldn't do it in, in the other times of the year. But obviously that was 11 years ago. So I'm just curious, how efficient is it now, and and what's the payback? Someone sort of okay says they they want to put in a two hundred fifty thousand dollars system. It's a warehouse. They got plenty of roof space. What's the payback? 
Sure. So, you know, one thing to observe about 11 years ago is kind of perhaps two things. One, you know, I mentioned that the, the price has literally been cut in half in the last five years. I don't have on mental hand what 11 years ago was. But <laughs> I would okay. expect it's something like 70 or, or 80 or 80 percent cheaper. Point two is that the warranties, the standardization and the density and the installation have all gotten a lot better. And so I suspect some of the how much can you produce with a roof dynamic you might have experienced has uh, grown by, I would suspect, at least twofold uh, in terms of what you can get out of a given square meter of roof. So, so those, are, those are two dynamics. I mean, I think the, the broader point, though, that this doesn't take you off the grid is a really good one. I mean, I think a lot of people think you, know, you can certainly have backup power that can be helpful if you have a certain type of inverter that's a little more expensive, but not wildly expensive, such that if power was knocked out, you could actually consume your solar energy. But, you know, for 99% of projects, uh, people are staying attached to the grid and either generating some energy because they build a relatively large system that has to be sent back to the grid and how that's treated is state by state. Uh, Sometimes you get, you know, dollar for dollar against your energy bill. That's the most favorable. Sometimes you get some portion of that. Sometimes you don't get anything. And, you know, some systems are built such that they're deliberately only giving you 60 or 70% perhaps of your consumptive need. Uh, We actually like those systems more because they're not subject to those regulatory, you know, dynamics that I just described, Mm -hmm. sending power back to the grid. And then the utility has to figure out in conjunction with, you know, local jurisdictions, how they're going to treat it. So I would say today, the vast majority of commercial systems, you know, it's hard for me to speak to residential because we do commercial systems exclusively. Mm -hmm. Um, We see payback periods in the five to seven year range. So that's what we like to see. Uh, If you were in a very, very expensive rate case uh, state, so let's say California has relatively high rate cases, a bunch of places in New England, of course, Hawaii or Puerto Rico, those kinds of places you sometimes see below five years. We don't like to see past much past, you know, seven or eight or nine. But uh, with a really, really creditworthy borrower, we might look at it. Right now, we're seeing that if you're below about 12 cents or 11 cents, the math starts to get, you know, it starts to push those numbers out. But we're doing a lot of deals right now in places where, you know, a few years ago, it didn't make sense. But now it does, which we see as like 12 cent power to about 15 cent power. So it really depends on where you are. But uh, the short answer is that, you know, we've got 25 year warranties on these things now. And, you know, if you're getting paid back in five to seven years for the folks who are working with, you can imagine the project ROI is, is pretty darn good in, in, in those out years. Right. Right. So I wanted, you, you mentioned, I want to talk about underwriting for a little bit. You mentioned a couple of times that you know, tech is really an, an important focus for you to be able to do this efficiently. So can you just um, talk us through your underwriting process and how you decide you know, what projects that you're happy to take on? Sure. I'll maybe just start at a really high level because I did talk a little bit about you know solar projects as assets, and so the first you know the first bifurcation is you know are we talking about underwriting the the borrower right the the, the business the municipality the hospital the school whoever, whoever might be in our case or are we talking about the quality of the asset that we'll own if that initial borrower defaults uh, which is to say the the solar system and uh, more to the point what is the kind of cash value of of that system so. If you think about that bifurcation on the borrower side, on the evaluation of the the business, you know I do think in the last ten years there's been some industry practices developed that are that, that are based in a lot of years of data of you know uh, medium sized business lending, uh, commercial lending in the U.S. And I think we've done a very good job of bringing in people 
to help us build a system that reflects those, you know, practices. The truth is there's not a lot of, you know, the things you would think you look for, you look for, and there's not a lot of secret data. I mean, I think we do a few clever things, but five years of audited financials tell you a lot, right? So, you know, you can be as clever as Mm -hmm. you want to about evaluating those, but I don't know that, you know, our story to investors is that we're doing that somehow better than the market leaders and someone like Cabbage, right, is doing just broad-based commercial lending, not focused on solar. Um, I think we're doing a very good job there. And I don't think we're lending to any businesses that aren't good counterparties, but I don't know that we're innovating in that side. There is uh, the other side of it, which is, you know, the quality of that system. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if in year four, God forbid, there's some cycle no one sees and there was a good risk, but the business fails and Wonder has to take ownership on behalf of our investors and the, the fund they've invested in of that system and monetize it. And the, the range of things you're looking at there are very different from the sort of things that a traditional you know, commercial lender like Cabbage or On Deck might look at. We're, first of all, making sure the person who builds it is A, of a very high quality. We're doing third-party inspections. We're making sure they're very experienced about at least 25 systems of this type, kind of et cetera, et cetera. Our approval rate for installer partners is actually 30%, uh, which is, I think, very given that we're trying to grow our business as well. Uh, but we're very, you know, kind of sticklers for, for really good partners. And they're also incented over time through O&M, through production guarantees, who build a really good system. So all those things need to be in place. Moreover, the hardware you use and the warranty behind it are incredibly important. If you buy some, you know, hardware on discount to get a lower price uh, or take more margin and that business goes away and that warrant is now defunct because they didn't reinsure it prop- you know, properly, that's a real problem if you own the system and something breaks, which right. happens less, but you still want to think about that downside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the sorts of things we're looking at there. The last one is, you know, how are you going to monetize the system? I think a lot of people intuitively think you're going to take the hardware itself. You're going to go grab that, those solar panels, and you're going to sell them for what they're worth. That turns out to be very expensive. About 20% of solar project costs is installation. And so just taking it all down is 20%, putting it back up somewhere else is 20%, and it's used hardware. And so right. uh, there's not a huge market for that stuff. <laughs> the way to think of it is you're generating, you know, if, if your original deal provided a savings to the borrower, right? If the total package was such that they were saving money every month and you were still paying your investors all that you promised them, which is how we structure our deals then as long as there's someone in that building consuming power and you own this electricity generation machine on the roof, you should be a very compelling offer to that tenant saying, would you like to save 10 or 15% or 20%? Uh, actually, in our underwriting, we model out what we would need to offer or, or what the terms would be if we offered a 30% discount to that. So if we had to go in and say, we own an electricity generation system on your roof, well, if you have 30% discount to the utility, which I think is very compelling, what would that return look like? And we like to see that even at that level, we'll get you know all or most of our investors' money back. And so that's all the work that we're doing. That so I just wanted to kind of lay that out because there's really two categories of work. Right. Um, I think on the on the business evaluation side, there's a lot of standardized information. There's a lot of experience reports. There's a lot of SBA data data sets. There's a lot of quantifiable stuff. And we've added a lot of tech there in the way that again these major players have kind of paved the road on. The solar, you know, is really stuff that we've innovated on. And frankly, has been such in flux as we develop our you know, best practices internally that, you know, that, that stuff is getting automated, but we're really building some of that stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a great Paul Graham blog post about keeping things manual until you really understand what you need. And, you know, I think that just in the last 12 to 24 months, we've kind of nailed down what that approach is because that's novel territory. Whereas, you know, there was really a playbook to come in and run in 2013. 
when we got started on how you evaluate business. The last thing I'll say though is that you know software is great at going out and gathering data, at filtering out projects that are clear no's. Oh, one of the principals had a bankruptcy in the last three years. No, thank you. Right, red mm-hmm. flag. No, 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 no. Very expensive human eyeballs are going to look at this. So a lot of it is how do you optimize for your very expensive, you know, wonderful brains on your team, right? In that time, and the more efficiency you can get there, that's kind of the whole ball game. And so you want to filter out, you want to gather data intelligently, scrape data, use APIs, fill out these profiles. But the most familiar portion of our process to a traditional project finance person would actually be once that once that profile is no red flags and filled out. Um, we have a very traditional kind of you know, product underwriter. One person leads it, takes it to credit committee, goes back and does research in some of the areas that got flagged. And, you know, we have the kind of traditional red, yellow, green <laughs> sort of dynamic with, you know, across hundreds of variables. So actually we believe that the one place where human beings are really essential is these are still fairly complex, multivariate sorts of decisions. And there's a lot of context and understanding, is it okay they didn't have to hit our 10% profit margin goal once the last four years, right? What happened there? It's a really hard thing to automate, at least today, right? So um, we kind of have this belief that, you know, underwriting, the core underwriting, is this a good project, has to stay human. And we don't see that changing anytime in kind of the shorter, medium term. Right. Right. Understood. Okay. I want to switch to the other side of the platform here and talk about the investors because clearly this is uh, where you have a compelling offer here. So why don't you describe, you know, you go to your homepage and you see the two different uh, investment products. Why don't you give, why don't you describe what they are for the listeners? Absolutely. Thanks. So our most recent fund, the term fund, which is the vast majority of the volume that, that we're doing today and launched last July, offers a projected 8.5% annual return to investors over a seven-year fully amortized term. So kind of think of it as from a cash flow standpoint, being kind of the, the you know lender side of a mortgage that's a seven-year mortgage at an 8.5% term. Uh, you can pull up any standard amortization and interest calculator and see exactly what the payments are and where you'd be. It's a pretty vanilla paper. Um, the wrinkle is, of course, that we're financing solar systems, and that's our collateral. So we have uh, more than 100 installer partners across the country. Uh, these are the folks out in your local town or you know, area convincing people to go solar and actually doing the work of, of building it and designing it and engineering it. It behooves them to have a financing offer. Uh, some people are interested in a monthly payment option, not paying up front, particularly when it's an average half million dollar ticket for us. And um, so we come in as a financing offer. Uh, we are giving them loans with the exact same term as your projected notes as an investor. So a lot like Lending Club, of course, the, the largest still online lender, you know, we're, we're basically pairing you to the term of the debt. And we will sometimes lend slightly higher than that, something like 8.75% or in that range, in order to uh, provide a little extra cash in the vehicle. Lender doesn't take that uh, excess. It's, it's saved in the vehicle for, uh, you know, down the road, potential uh, workout costs or similar. Uh, sometimes costs arise in funds. It's good to have cash. But basically, we're pairing you to, you know, commercial uh, entities that we, as I described, done a, a robust job uh, underwriting, understanding the risks associated with. And, you know, just as importantly, we've both done the work to make sure these are really good systems that make economic sense for whomever's in that building, and also done the work to understand in that jurisdiction, how do we exercise the funds rights, really our investors rights, as it relates to ownership of those systems in the case of default. So we are releasing at end of project completion, just to be clear, because we're underwriting really the cash flow stream and the electricity generation more than the, the hardware. Uh, the hardware doesn't do me any good. 
uh, we're not releasing into the projects our uh, substantial completion is the is the term du jour in the industry. And that is that's basically the the overview. Um, the last thing I would just say is you know the the fund structure. The reason we went there, we actually started as a as a marketplace where you could come in and pick your own projects. And it turns out that uh, people were really trusting us and, and looking to us to curate our pipeline of the, this flow from our 100 plus partner of any business that's looking at a, a quarter million to, to million dollar system. They wanted us to curate it. And moreover, people wanted diversification when they wanted an allocation to this asset class. So uh, we switched course uh, starting in, in 2015. And the idea is really that you can come in and get a note that because your note is uh, the only claim against this you know, portfolio of cash flows coming in from, you know, the, the loans that we make to businesses, um, you're immediately diversified both against all previous, you know, your pro rata share of all previous projects financed and all future projects financed until we stop taking in capital. So you can make a, you know, as small as a thousand dollar investment. We regularly also get six figure investments into these funds uh, and seven figure investments into these funds. You can make as small as a thousand dollar investment and be diversified in our term fund in you know, 30 plus projects and, you know, we're only less than a year through it. Okay. Um, so it is a kind of immediately diversified allocation to commercial solar debt. So the other, the other fund that you have you, you, on your website, the Wonder Income Fund, which has a term of yeah. 120 months and average a target return right. of 6%, that is still a product of, um, that you're offering? Absolutely, absolutely. And what's the As difference said, then? Is, been, it di- what, is it just really one is lower risk, type businesses that you're, uh, well, what, what is the difference between the two? Yeah, the, the, the difference is really that we launched the income fund first. And what we found at the 6% over 10 years was that there was a um, appetite in the capital markets for, for that type of term and rate, uh, but that most of that interest was concentrated amount, or around people that were very focused on the relationship between the utility bill, so the avoided cost, and the monthly debt service. Um, so basically, if what you're worried about is, does the electricity generation cover my monthly you know, amount, making it a longer term and making it a lower rate effectively allows you to have a bigger buffer, right? Obviously, the monthly bill to the business is going to be smaller, and uh, the utility bill will stay the same, and the system will generate the exact same amount. So uh, as you lengthen the term, and as you reduce the rate, what you see is that if what you're really interested in is the ratio between kind of what the cash flow value of the underlying asset is and what your debt coverage is, it's the ratio you're focused on, there's a subset of investors that really enjoy that product for that reason, mm-hmm. where Got it gets through some filter that they apply. Got it. Um, what we've found is that the vast majority of our investors and partners uh, prefer an 8.5% over seven-year return and solar systems are delivering so much economic value these days that we can go get them those rates and shrink the term in that way. And so we really launched the second fund, the term fund, to service, you know, I would argue, a larger portion of the capital markets than what the income fund does. And so our volume being focused on the term fund is really a reaction to capital market demand. Okay. And so, and can you give us a sense of that volume? I mean, where, where are you at as far as number of projects, total loans originated? Yeah, so as I mentioned, Term Fund itself, which just launched in July of, of last year, I, I suppose, I can't believe it's about to be June, so I suppose we're sneaking up on the one-year anniversary. Between loans uh, financed and those contracted to be executed in the next 90 days, we have more than 40 projects in the Term Fund uh, just in that under-a-year period. 
and I believe our total counts on projects financed or solar loans made uh, is over 100 uh, across uh, our funds at this point. So, so we've done a significant volume of projects, and you know our uh, internal target uh, as a team is to be in the kind of mid-eight figure range in terms of projects financed and dollars out the door in 2017 and this year. Okay, and we're on target to hit those numbers. Okay, so who are the investors? Are you are you like 100% individual investors now? Are you? Do you have institutional capital? And are these people who really? impact type investors. Can you give us a little bit of info about the investors? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the big challenges when you start a new, you know, underwriting approach, you're going after a new market, you yourself are a new, you know, loan issuer, is how do you get to the first rung of respectability or diligence ability for institutional investors? Because anyone who's paid to manage someone's money is probably not going to give you money when you have, you know, definitionally at some point we had zero dollars out and zero projects done. Right? <laughs> we need to go figure out how to how to get those first dollars. And individual investors that came predominantly through our website and, you know, a disproportionate amount, I would say, of impact investors early on were the people who really got us going and and God bless them. Increasingly, we are finding ourselves servicing because of the scale that I just mentioned. We have found a lot of success with family offices, with community banks and co-ops, with foundations, and, you know, some early conversations with some of the really, you know, large banking players. But I think, you know, in 2017, I would have to go see how this is, is modeled, but I believe we're expecting, you know, relative parity between individuals and institutions, whether they're, you know, smaller institutions, it might be small seven-figure, mid-seven-figure checks, or, you know, larger institutions that are looking at, at larger amounts, and we'll probably do something more custom for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did really get started on individuals and impact investors, but we find ourselves increasingly, you know, uh, fielding interests and, you know, developing products, frankly, for a, a check size and more sophisticated institutional investor. And I don't know if this has been said publicly, so this, this might be an announcement here, uh, but we are, uh, we're working on our next fund. We'll actually be targeting only qualified purchasers and uh, kind of the terms um, and some of the dynamics will be more you know, focused on what institutions are, are used to and like investing in as opposed to retail investors. So we are actually launching a fund deliberately for those folks in reflection of the, the trend that I just mentioned. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So then, and, and what about non-accredited investors? Are you are you looking at anything for the vast majority of the population? Yeah, you know, we keep working hard with our council and some of our uh, peers in the online lending space to nail down what the regulatory costs and the annual ongoing, you know, what the upfront costs are and what the annual ongoing costs are for a couple of different options that they make available, uh, the SEC does. And this is all a fallout from the 2012 Jobs Act, by the right. way. We, we currently issue uh, Regulation D506C securities. Uh, that, that Those are our funds on our website, wondercapital.com. But uh, there's another portion of that regulation that <clears throat> fairly recently has been uh, re-rolled on, actually. It's called Regulation A, and the re-rolling is called Regulation A+. Yes. And uh, what Regulation A plus did was take Regulation A, which allowed you to raise from uh, unaccredited any investor for up to $5 million and took it up to $50 million, uh, which I thought was actually fairly reactive to, to criticism that the fixed costs associated with just didn't make any kind of sense at $5 million. You know, it, it, uh, there was actually, I think, a, new, a recent New York Times article made the point that it's kind of yet to be seen uh, whether A-plus will realize a lot of 
fundraising in the markets. There's a certain amount of how much actual demand is there out there from credit investors. Funny, funny enough, I think it's something everyone assumed, uh, but that's something we're watching. But the big barrier for us is, you know, we just talked to a firm, actually, I talked last week to a firm about A+, because I like to check in on it. And it was described to me as a mini IPO. Mm-hmm. As, as as it relates to the uh, as it relates to the kind of overhead and regulatory uh, expectations, and so uh, you know, a mini post Sarbanes Oxley IPO is is not something that a company trying to grow fast and uh, and then launch funds is, is incredibly excited about. Right. So we'll continue to try to work with you know the SEC to get real clarity on whether you can do this in a cost effective way. I don't know that we're going to go out and be the valiant knights of A plus who uh, ch- charged on that road and prove it out. I think, you know, we have some other roads we're hoping to charge down, right. uh, like, like unlocking this, this underserved commercial market. So yep. uh, I think if, if we see it start to work, I'm really excited about it. It really pains me that there are people who want to invest and, and, and promote solar, literally dollar for dollar building solar with their, their capital and still making, you know, what we think is a really strong return. I hate it. You know, we'll get, we'll get emails. People, you know, think it's us providing their, the restriction, you know, people are angry uh, and I'm with them. Um, so I would love to do it, but uh, I don't know that we're going to be the groundbreakers there. Right. Well, I mean, there are other companies I know that are, that are doing reggae plus deals and it's, uh, yeah, I've heard, heard from many of those people that it is a really, it's, it's a hard slog and that's, that's a shame, but right. hopefully, hopefully it will get easier and there'll be more opportunities for non-accredited investors down the road. Anyway, we're just about out of time. I wanted to just give a chance maybe to tell tell the listeners what's exciting for you. What are you working on now? What are the things you know, that you see coming down the pipe in the next 12 months for Wonder Capital? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are just starting to roll out uh, retirement accounts. So that's a, that's a huge thing for us. We haven't had that previously. And it's obviously a whole separate market and figuring out how to talk to and get to and um, get ourselves in front of and make a good impression for the retiree market is probably what I'm going to be spending a lot of my three to six months on. Uh, and the other, as I mentioned, in the family office, you know, and foundation space is, and we feel as though we're in this critical transition period where if we can get a couple of, you know, seven figure, eight figure investments from people that perhaps have some impact uh, focus, but also have, you know, strong risk return focus, that really will allow us to grow to a scale where I think that, you know, we'll, we'll start to take off. And so we're really focused on servicing that market well. And as I mentioned, we're launching a fund in that space. And so those will be the two big things that we're focused on in uh, 2017. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I really appreciate you coming on the show today, Brian. Thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed it. Okay. See ya. Take care. I applaud what Brian and his fellow co-founders and the team at Wonder Capital have done. They've really, they've come into a, a niche that was obviously fairly well established for traditional finance, but they've taken an innovative approach and opened it up to individual investors to, to invest. And, and it's, it's a great niche. I mean, even if you're not an impact investor, you know, you can earn eight and a half percent returns backed by an asset. That's, that is a pretty compelling return today. And if you are an impact investor, then, you know, you have, you have a great option with a minimum of a thousand dollars. You know, I'm actually surprised there's, there's really not more players uh, today in the solar space. It's a growing industry, as Brian said. And, you know, the sun is obviously not going away. And we have a lot of the planet that receives lots of sunlight. So, you know, I think they've focused on a business that has a lot of potential in a niche that will almost certainly be far, far bigger in 10 years time than it is today. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.